Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dr. Harlan Betts, and I am delighted to welcome you to Wisdom from Above, where we go beyond the reasoning of man to the revelation of God. The Bible is designed to convey God's message to mankind. Consequently, understanding the Bible is exceedingly important. How is it that people and churches can support such widely opposing views of the Bible? The answer to this problem lies in the method of interpretation. The words of the Bible are supposed to be understood in their normal, natural, and usual sense. This is referred to as the literal interpretation of the Bible. This little interpretation is motivated by a desire to understand the precise meaning of the words the writer is using. This is the ordinary way that all literature is interpreted. Historical records, newspapers, magazines, and books would be a meaningless jumble of words if we could not interpret them literally. Now, literal interpretation does not ignore figures of speech, such as symbols, metaphors, and similes. The natural, normal meaning of words and phrases is sought. There's a clear understanding that figures of speech are a legitimate means of conveying a literal meaning. But that is the normal, natural, usual way to interpret figures of speech. Here at Wisdom from Above, we believe in literal interpretation. We believe in taking the words of the Bible in their normal, natural, and usual sense. This view has led us to believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible, the deity of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the second coming of Jesus Christ. It has also led us to believe that Jesus is going to rapture the church to heaven, and this will be followed by the seven-year tribulation here on earth, and that will be followed by the Lord Jesus Christ returning to earth as King of kings and Lord of lords to rule and reign for 1,000 years. The term 1,000 years is found no less than six times in the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 20. The term millennium comes from two Latin words, mil meaning a thousand, like in millimeter, mil means a thousand, and annum meaning year, like we have the term annual. So we have mil annum, 1,000 years. The Bible makes it clear that following the second coming, revealed in Revelation 19, Jesus is going to rule and reign on earth for 1,000 years, as revealed in Revelation 20. And so this reign of Christ on earth for 1,000 years is referred to as the millennial kingdom, because it's a 1,000-year reign. It's all really pretty simple and straightforward. So you would think everyone would look at this 1,000-year reign of Christ in the same way. But, believe it or not, 
This is an area of major doctrinal dispute. Sadly, rather than literally interpreting the Bible, some folks allegorize or spiritualize the Bible, especially the prophetic sections of the Bible. And when the Bible is allegorized or spiritualized, it becomes like putty in the hands of the interpreter. And the result is that the passage is misrepresented, the truth is misunderstood, and the application is misleading. There are actually three different views on this 1,000-year reign of Christ. And what I'd like to do is try to define them, and then note their difficulties, and then make a decision about them. View 1, post-millennialism. Definition. The post-millennialist believes the world will just keep getting better and better and better until the whole world is Christianized and the world will experience a long period of peace and prosperity following which Christ will return. So he returns after the supposed thousand years Therefore, after the thousand, post-millennial. The difficulties with this post-millennial view. Post-millennialism is the most recently developed of the three major views concerning the millennial kingdom, and is also the view that has almost universally been abandoned. This view lost its support and steam as a result of the two world wars and the Depression, and the overwhelming rise of moral evil. Both experience and scripture stand in opposition to the post-mill idea that the world is going to just get better and better. In fact, the scripture teaches us that the world is going to grow from bad to worse. Jesus made this very clear in Matthew 24, 5-14, as he predicted signs of the times, and things going from bad to worse. Paul also made it clear in 2 Timothy 3, when he said in the last days people will be deceitful and lovers of pleasure and lovers of money and lovers of self rather than lovers of God. So what is our decision? The post-millennial view is clearly contrary to the teachings of the Bible. Well, view number two. View number two is called millennialism, which is a view that there will be no 1,000-year reign of Christ. Ah, therefore, ah, millennial. Just like agnosis, you cannot know, an agnostic that says he cannot know, ah, millennial means no 1,000-year reign. So, ah, millennial means no millennium. The all-millennial view attributes to the church the prophecies related to Israel, and they don't think there will be a thousand years. They believe the millennial kingdom is somehow being realized right now in a spiritual, figurative, or metaphorical way. Now, what are the difficulties with all-millennialism? They have difficulty with the binding of Satan. Notice the, some, some Amils 
say that Satan was bound by Jesus at the cross. Other on mills say Satan was bound by Jesus and the apostles in their ministry. The on-mill interpretation of what the binding of Satan is and when the binding of Satan takes place is subjective because the terms are spiritualized. All All millennials have difficulty with the thousand years because it has been almost 2,000 years since Satan was supposedly spiritually bound according to their interpretation. Therefore, all millennials have to spiritualize the term 1,000 years and try to make it somehow fit into this 2,000 years in some kind of metaphorical way. Which leads us to a third difficulty they have, and that's the difficulty with the reign of Christ. Some Amils say Jesus is reigning on earth, like Augustine. Other Amils say Jesus is reigning in heaven, like Clefoth. Both of these views are figurative and metaphorical. And both of these views face three crushing problems. One, Jesus is not literally, physically reigning on the throne of David and Jerusalem, as predicted in the Bible. Two, Jesus is not literally, physically reigning over the entire earth, as predicted in the Bible. And three, there's not a worldwide peace, as predicted in the Bible. Let me give some additional reasons for rejecting the Amil view. The Bible doesn't teach that Satan was bound at Jesus' first coming. In opposition to the Amil view, The Bible teaches that Satan is alive and well on the late great planet Earth. As Jesus predicted, Satan is seeking to steal and kill and destroy, steal our faith, kill our hope, destroy our love. Satan is not bound. As Peter declared, Satan is prowling about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan is not bound. As Paul declares, Satan is blinding the minds of unbelievers, and Satan is leading the mind of believers astray. Satan is appearing as an angel of light. And believers don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And we must put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Satan is not bound. He's alive and well and has a strategy for our defeat. Number two, the Bible teaches a literal, physical reign of Christ on earth. The Abrahamic covenant includes three promises, land, seed, and blessing. And these these three promises were literal, eternal, and unconditional. These promises will be fulfilled in God's dealings with Israel. Abraham Isaac and Jacob and their believing descendants were promised that one of their descendants would be the Messiah and that the Messiah would literally physically come to earth and that the Messiah would literally physically rule in the promised land. We read about this in Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 26 and chapter 28. The Bible predicts that after Jesus returns to earth in his second coming, 
Israel will dwell in her land, the promised land. And the promised seed, Jesus, will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And they will experience the blessing of being with their God and in peace. Land, seed, and blessing. Little, eternal, unconditional. Daniel also predicted that the Messiah would rule over the entire earth. In Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, he predicted a golden age of peace and justice. Isaiah predicted that the Messiah will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations and individuals will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. It'll be a time of perfect peace. The government will be upon the Messiah's shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, there should be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forevermore, the lion will eat straw like an ox. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion together, and a little child shall lead them. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the dumb shall sing, waters will burst forth in wilderness, streams in the desert, the parched ground shall become a pool, the thirsty land springs of water, the ransom of the Lord shall come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy. Behold, the days are coming the Lord says, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. And then Zechariah also predicts, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. So you see, over and over and over, these predictions of land, seed, and blessing, literal, eternal, unconditional, Jesus coming back as the Messiah to rule and reign in the promised land over the people of Israel and over all the world. You see, all millennials equate Israel and the church, but Israel's not the church, and the church is not Israel. The Bible distinguishes God's program for Israel and God's program for the church. Israel is the wife of God the Father. The church is the bride of God the Son. Israel looks forward to, a, to the Messiah reigning here on earth. The church looks forward to a place in the Father's house. Israel is pruned here on earth during the tribulation. And Israel will come to faith in Jesus at the end of tribulation. While the church is raptured off the earth before the tribulation. Jesus Christ promised Abraham and his seed a literal, physical kingdom on earth. We read about it in Matthew 19, Matthew 24, Matthew 25. The Apostle John wrote of a literal, physical, thousand-year reign of cross in earth. We read about it in Revelation chapter 20. The attempt to see these promises fulfilled by Christ's rule with the saints in heaven or with the church on earth fails to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, fails to fulfill the biblical prophecies, and fails to fit the teachings of Christ. So what's our decision? 
the amillennial approach to Scripture is contrary to the Bible. It's inconsistent, switching from literal to allegorical. It's indefensible, confusing Israel and the church. And it's illegitimate because it distorts the terms of the text. This brings us to view three, which is the view that I hold to be true, pre-millennialism. And you can probably guess what that means, pre-millennial. Jesus Christ will come back before the thousand years. Pre-millennialism, the earliest of the three major views, teaches that Jesus Christ is going to return personally, literally, physically, to rule upon the earth for a thousand years. By the way, premillennials look at Revelation 20 the same way they look at every text. They take the words in their normal, natural sense. And this view places the second coming of Christ previous to the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ, thus pre-millennial. Well, what are the difficulties with premillennialism? There really are none. It's a, a simple, literal, normal interpretation of the Bible. Revelation 2 and 3, as anyone can tell by reading it, deal with the church. And then it disappears from chapters 4 through 18, where we read about the tribulation. And then in chapter 19, it talks about the second coming of Christ. And then in chapter 20, it talks about the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ. It all makes sense. It is also easy to understand when you just take it in its literal, natural, normal sense. The premillennial view simply takes God's word at face value. Premills believe the prophecies of the second coming will be fulfilled literally, just as the prophecies of the first coming will fulfill literally. So what's our decision? The premillennial view is supported by the Bible. Now let's dig a little deeper into the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 20. Satan is bound 1,000 years in the abyss in verses 1 through 3. Listen as I read that passage. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. I, I, I want you to note the names that are used in verse 2. Dragon, serpent, devil, Satan. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Dragon, a destructive monster. Serpent, a deceitful spirit. Devil, a deliberate slanderer. Satan, a deadly adversary. Please note that Satan is not conquered by the slow but sure spread of the truth. Nor is he conquered by the faithful and persistent work of believers. Nor is he conquered by the gradual and global Christianization of the world. 
Please note that Satan is not overthrown by the work of gospel preaching, nor by the binding of prayers, nor by the claims of preachers. Satan is overthrown by Jesus, the omnipotent King of Kings, at his second coming to earth. Satan is seized, bound, cast into the abyss, shut in the abyss, sealed in the abyss for 1,000 years. And then in verses 4 through 6, we see the saints are resurrected to reign for a thousand years with Christ. Listen as I read those verses. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. But this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part of the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. There's a couple things that are noted in these three verses. First, ruling and reigning. This describes a picture of saints ruling and reigning with Christ. I believe these are the New Testament saints. We read about this in Matthew 19. They are overcomers. We read about this in 1 Corinthians and 2 Timothy and Revelation. And then there are also the martyrs co-reigning with Christ. I believe these are the tribulation saints. So we have both the New Testament saints and the tribulation saints ruling and reigning with Christ. And then we read about the first and second resurrections. Before we look at that, I want to go back to what Jesus said in John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And then we go back even further to Daniel's prediction in Daniel 12.2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life. Some to everlasting to shame and everlasting contempt. So there's both a first resurrection and a second resurrection. The first resurrection, we're told, is a physical resurrection to life. And it's a resurrection of believers. And they'll have eternity with God, comfort and joy. The second resurrection is a physical resurrection to death. A resurrection of unbelievers who will face an eternity away from God in torment and shame. So in the first resurrection, we have the church-age saints resurrected at the rapture before the tribulation, taken up to heaven. And then we have the OT, Old Testament saints, and the tribulation saints resurrected after the second coming, after the tribulation, to enter the kingdom. This first resurrection is a resurrection of believers 
to face eternity with God in comfort and joy. The second resurrection is a resurrection of unbelievers to face eternity away from God in torment and shame. And that's all the unsaved who are resurrected after the millennium before the great white throne judgment. You may have noticed as I read those verses in 4 through 6 that there are three key blessings associated with the first resurrection. No second death, priest of God, reigning with Christ. So no second death, eternal life in the presence of God for all believers. Priest of God, special service privileges before God for all believers. Reigning with Christ, special leadership privileges with God for believers. Then we come to verses 7 through 10, the last four verses, in which Satan is loosed after the thousand years and then sent to the lake of fire. Listen as I read those four verses. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose numbers as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, and fire came down from God and out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what happens after the thousand years is completed? Satan is loosed after the thousand-year reign of Christ, and immediately he resumes his nefarious activities. He plunges into a campaign of deception. A great number of people join him in this final rebellion against the rule of Christ. Where do Satan's followers come from? Well, living believers at the end of the tribulation enter the millennial kingdom in their natural bodies. The millennial kingdom begins only with believers. However, those people with natural bodies have children, and their children have children, and this takes place over a thousand years, resulting in a huge, huge number of people in the kingdom, a large majority of whom believe in Jesus and make a decision to trust him and submit to him. Outwardly, all are required to accept his leadership, but inwardly, some will not accept Jesus as their Lord. Think about it. A perfect environment, starting with everyone as a believer, and Jesus is the king, but ultimately, some still reject Jesus. This proves that eliminating sin is not as easy as changing the environment. There's something wrong in the heart of mankind. Rebellion is in our nature. This also demonstrates that although the devil is the cause of much of the evil and suffering in our world, we cannot always excuse ourselves by saying the devil made me do it. Mankind is sinful in nature. The trouble is in here, not out there. Mankind needs a savior. When Satan is loose for a brief time, following the thousand-year reign, these unbelieving and hard-hearted people will join Satan in his final attempt to overthrow the holy city and the Lord. What is the result? In Revelation chapter 20, 
at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ, a confederacy of nations from the four corners of the earth will invade Israel. This confederacy of nations is referred to as Gog and Magog. Buse Fanning says the phrase Gog and Magog evidently refers to the world's rulers and nations in rebellion against God. This same label, Gog and Magog, is found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. However, the battle predicted in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is taking place at a different time, with different people, and with different results than the battle in Revelation 20. The battle of Gog and Magog predicted in Ezekiel 38 and 39 refers to a confederacy of nations from the north that will invade Israel, an event which I believe will take place in the middle of the tribulation, and the dead are buried over a period of seven months. But the enemies predicted in Revelation 20 are not just from the north, but from all corners of the earth. And the battle is not during the tribulation, but is at the end of the millennium. And the dead are not buried, but are devoured by fire. So, just as we have named battles World War I and World War II, I think you could say that the scriptures speak of the battle of Magog and Magog I during the tribulation, and the battle of Gog and Magog II at the end of the millennium. Why does God release Satan and allow this to happen? Uh, I want to share four reasons that come to mind. Number one, to demonstrate that a perfect environment is not sufficient to bring about good. It proves utopian scientists are wrong in believing that the, the idea that man is basically good, but his environment is bad. That's not true. Man is intrinsically evil. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We're all born with an old sinful nature. Number two, to demonstrate the wisdom and foreknowledge of God in seeking an inward change and in knowing the future. Number three, to demonstrate the incurable wickedness of Satan, who though he knows he is defeated, still wants to destroy as many people as he can. And number four, to demonstrate God's justice in the punishment of those who do not believe in his son and therefore do not have spiritual life. Another question you might be asking, how long does the lake of fire last? Satan is cast into the lake of fire where the Antichrist and the false prophet have already been incarcerated for the last 1,000 years And there, in hell, in the lake of fire, they, that's third person plural, they will be tormented forever and ever. You see, annihilation is not taught in the Bible. This is an eternal incarceration, and there's no possibility of parole. Now let's wrap this up with a few more practical applications. In all of this, Our God is to be glorified. Out of the fall of man and through the redemption of Christ, God has raised up a family of believers. Not just to the level of unfallen Adam. Not just to the level of unfallen angels. Not just to the level of the archangels. Not just to the level of the cherubim, but to the very throne of God. Can you even begin to imagine the thrill of ruling 
and reigning with Christ. There are two options that lie before every human being. Eternal life and joy in the presence of God or eternal shame and torment separated from God. We cannot remain neutral. We are sinners and the wages of our sin is death and eternal separation from God. We either choose to believe in Jesus or we go to hell. It is critical that we remember that Jesus made it clear that the lake of fire was not created for people. It was created for Satan and his demons. But some people will go there because they do not believe in the one who gave his life that they might have life. You see, eternal life is a free gift of God by his grace to all who believe in Jesus. God loves you. Let me say that again. I don't want you to miss it. God loves you. Christ died for you. The Spirit is convicting you. Will you respond to him? Please place your faith in Jesus. And if you do, you'll be forgiven of your sins. You'll be born into the family of God and you'll be guaranteed eternal life. Trust in Christ and you'll be there in the kingdom as he reigns. Isaac Watts tries to capture the breadth and length of Christ's reign with these words. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. George Frederick Handel picked up the joy of Christ's reign with these words, Hallelujah! For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, and he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of Wisdom from Above. I'm honored that you are carving out the time to listen to Wisdom from Above. It has been fun for me to hear how many of you are making this a part of your weekly routine while walking or jogging or working out or taking a break or just driving to work. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. I look forward to meeting with you next week when we'll discover the many facts about the Great White Throne Judgment. This is Dr. Harlan Betts, wishing you a great week and God's blessings. Thank you for joining me in this passionate quest for wisdom from above.